Hi, I'm Lone Candle. In part one, I concluded that although I don't think anyone should ever try a hard drug, drugs even as dangerous as heroin are not risky enough to limit people's freedom on account of self-harm. Let freedom reign. In part two, I said, if you want to argue that we should ban cocaine, meth, or heroin for the sake of harm to others, then you should be for banning alcohol and smoking tobacco because their external harms are worse. I then became sympathetic toward banning smoking tobacco and alcohol because the harms these drugs cause to other people are tremendous. Now, for this third and final part, I bring in the costs and benefits of implementing drug bans. We can't just assume that banning a drug removes all harm. Not every human obeys the law. We can't ignore the several costs of banning drugs, which include the actual financial cost of hunting down and imprisoning drug users, the lost tax revenue from the drugs being sold in black markets, incentives that produce more potent, mixed, and unknown drugs, less help for the addicted, forcing drug users to mix with people prone to illegality, funding gangs and organizations that commit considerably greater sins than selling drugs, throwing otherwise law-abiding citizens in jail, and a loss of respect for the government and law. In the end, these costs are so great and the effectiveness of drug bans so limited that we should legalize all these drugs. Cocaine and heroin should be regulated and available like tobacco and alcohol. If the goal of drug bans was to make it impossible or very difficult to obtain drugs, then the banning of drugs has been a complete and utter failure. Anyone who wants a drug can get it. However, a ban can be beneficial in other ways. Generally, such bans raise the price of drugs by 2 to 19 times due to the expense of avoiding law enforcement and the risk of getting caught. Similar to how alcohol taxes reduce the amount people drink, the increased price due to illegality also reduces consumption. Furthermore, some people won't use a drug because it's illegal. They may want to try a drug but won't because they value staying law-abiding more than using the drug, or they may fear the penalty. Others may never consider using a drug because society has deemed it immoral by making it illegal. If a drug becomes commercialized, this can further spread its use as marketing works its influence. Legalization and commercialization may facilitate drugs being normalized, where over time they become acceptable to use. Among Americans 12 and older, 51% have used alcohol in the past 30 days, 21% tobacco, 12% marijuana, 1% opioids, and 0.7% cocaine. Some of this is likely because people choose not to take substances that are illegal, but some is also because the legal drugs are available in regular stores and promoted by legitimate businesses. Over time, marijuana could increase to the 51% alcohol level. Legalizing drugs can also lead to innovation that makes drugs more dangerous and slash or enticing. Look at legal marijuana. Businesses have innovated with THC concentrates, vaping oils, and edibles. Both illegal and legal sellers of marijuana have increased the potency of their offerings. These products encourage more users in more intense use. Pushing in the other direction is the forbidden fruit effect. 
a certain type of person is more attracted to things that they are told they can't have. These people are more likely to take a drug when it's illegal. There isn't a simple relationship between the legality of a drug and its use. In different scenarios, legalization has different effects, and the effect isn't the same across drugs. There are also short and long-term effects. We shouldn't expect people to respond to heroin legalization the same way they respond to marijuana legalization. For one, marijuana has already become acceptable among a lot of people. And secondly, heroin is far more dangerous. So even if legalized, most people won't decide to give it a try just because there isn't a law against it. The overprescribing of opioids hints toward a harm of legalization. Influenced by lobbyists, campaign donations, and advocacy groups, the government allowed drug companies and doctors to prescribe and market pain medications in such a manner that facilitated the opioid epidemic. Rather than humans behaving responsibly, many people used opioids in a way that got them addicted and even ruined their lives. This suggests that legalizing addictive drugs will lead to the same. If drug makers of prescribed medications will downplay the risk of their drugs, then surely companies striving to make money off recreational drugs will do the same. The concern is that the harms from legally prescribing opioids looked a lot like the harms from legal alcohol and tobacco. Once legal, there are industry interest groups who fight for looser regulations, and these industries advertise and seek out customers, convincing them to use deadly substances. Now, we can't jump to the conclusion that heroin legalization would look anything like tobacco and alcohol because the increased dangers of heroin are well known, but certainly it may have some parallels that lead to more use of the drug. That we're initially talking about opioid use spreading due to doctors prescribing them could make us think full legalization of an opioid like heroin would have even worse results, but maybe not. Many people may be more likely to take a dangerous drug if a doctor initially prescribes it for them than if it's something they have to start without doctor advice. When thinking about the opioid crisis, we should be careful not to exaggerate the role of prescription drugs. Some courts have ruled in support of drug companies, acknowledging that legitimate patients rarely die or become addicted to prescription opioids. A study followed people who received opioid prescriptions for 13 years and less than 0.2% of them died of an opioid-related overdose. Another study found that among those who received opioid prescriptions, only 4.5% qualified as abusers. So, the vast majority of those on opioid prescriptions don't have problems with them. Generally, when we look at bans, decriminalizations, and legalizations across space and time, the legalization of a drug increases use and the banning of a drug decreases use. Studies with controls generally find that banning drugs reduces consumption. Additionally, legal drugs having very high use rates compared to illicit drugs is limited evidence toward the effectiveness of bans. There are a few studies that fail to find that decriminalization, criminalization, and reducing or increasing punishments around drugs affect drug use. These studies are more focused on decriminalization than legalization. They indicate that the relationship between penalties and drug use is not simple. Of course, removing penalties for drug use increases the incentives to use drugs, but it isn't always a key factor in one's decision. In surveys, the reason people give for not using drugs is more often health, beliefs and morals, no interest, and disapproval by peers or family than it is that the drug is illegal. 
The Netherlands is an example of drug laws not always being important. The country has high availability of decriminalized marijuana, but relatively low use. Even though cannabis is legal in the Netherlands, the country is in the middle of European countries in the amount of cannabis use. There is more in France and Italy where cannabis is illegal. States and countries that decriminalize drugs haven't seen huge increases in drug use. Evidence is mixed on whether U.S. states legalizing marijuana increased marijuana use, but it probably has a little bit. However, not among youth. During U.S. alcohol prohibition, consumption was initially 30% of pre-prohibition levels, growing to 60-70% to before prohibition was repealed. Some have argued that alcohol prohibition only reduced drinking by 10%, but it's clear that drinking was reduced, and it seems likely that the 10-40% to reduction would have continued forward had prohibition not been repealed. Portugal is a major testing ground for what happens after decriminalization because in 2001, Portugal decriminalized all drugs and combined this with a health program to get people off drugs. The penalty for possession is a small fine and possibly a rehab referral. Before that, Portugal took a tough-on-drugs approach, throwing people into prison. They now treat drug addicts as patients rather than criminals. Drug dealers still go to prison, but those with less than a 10-day supply go to a commission to learn about treatment and medical services. One could be fined, have social security benefits cut, or be forced into rehab, but about 85% of people sent to commission have no penalties. The approach includes services and outreach to help the addicted, as well as getting people clean needles and syringes. After a decade, hard drug use was 50% lower. There was a small increase in overall drug use among adults, but a decrease among younger people. Because cocaine and heroin are less price responsive than marijuana, legalization likely has less effect on the number of people using these drugs. Banning these drugs makes them more expensive, but people buy them anyways. Overall, drug bans generally lower drug use, but it really depends on the drug, the exact nature of the ban or legalization or decriminalization, and the society's culture. However, drug use alone doesn't matter. What matters is the harms and benefits of drug use. How has banning legalization, and decriminalization affected the greater harms of drug use? And what are the benefits and harms of the bans themselves? Well, the answer is, it depends on the drug, society, and the nature of the ban. After a decade of decriminalization in Portugal, drug overdose deaths became rare. Three per million persons. If U.S. rates were this low, less than a thousand people would die a year compared to 70,000-plus dying annually now. In Portugal, this rate later rose to 6 per million. But that number for the U.S. is 312 drug-induced deaths per million. Before this policy, Portugal drug death rates were close to EU rates. Since the policy, they have stayed further below. As of 2019, among people aged 15 to 64, the rest of the EU had 23.7 drug deaths per million people. Heroin addiction is down 50%. The addicted are mostly on substitution treatment, so are unlikely to die. After 15 years of the policy, deaths related to heroin fell by two-thirds. Over that time, 
the UK continued a punitive approach and deaths increased by two-thirds. In 2001 and 2002, Portugal had over 50% of EU new HIV diagnoses caused by drug injection. By 2019, it had 1.68%. Programs providing clean needles may have gone a long way in these improvements. 95% of those caught with drugs were Portuguese, so Portugal didn't become a big drug tourism spot like some feared. Portugal's policy change was more than just legal, it was social. People see addiction more as a medical and social problem than a moral or criminal one. Portugal is actually intervening a lot, just not with heavy criminal penalties. They intervene to try to take people off the path of addiction and to help those already addicted, rather than deterring with punishment. A 2015 study said decriminalization led to an 18% decrease in the social cost of drug misuse. From 1999 to 2013, the percentage of people in prison for drugs decreased from 44% to 24%. It later fell to 15%. So, Portugal's policies have greatly decreased the harms from drug use. U.S. alcohol prohibition resulted in health benefits for Americans. Patients in alcohol wards dropped by more than half. Cirrhosis cases went down by 10 to 20%, and deaths by more than a third. Arrest for drunkenness went down, and complaints of domestic violence were cut in half. After prohibition ended, there was a small increase in alcoholism and more cirrhosis. Prohibitions in Canada also reduced liver cirrhosis rates, and studies on national and state alcohol prohibitions found prohibitions associated with less crime and murder. However, the data on this is hard to study. So, as you might expect, to the extent that bans limit unhealthy drug use, we see some positive health results from drug bans. Marijuana legalization in several U.S. states and some countries are too recent to have a complete picture of the effects. What we can say is that they have reduced price, increased potency, and made cannabis more available. The evidence supports an increased frequency of use among adults but not youth. We've seen more emergency visits and hospitalizations for marijuana, which include visits for abuse and dependence, vehicle accidents, and head injuries from falls. The effects thus far are modest, but many of the legalizations include heavy restraints at the state level, and the drug is still illegal at the federal level. There is some evidence that young adults drink less alcohol when medical marijuana is allowed, and there may not be a net car crash increase caused by legalizing marijuana because people drinking less alcohol can cause less alcohol-related motor accidents. However, such findings aren't on solid footing yet. Ultimately, the data on marijuana legalization is still young. There are some negative effects, but they are modest thus far. In general, benefits from drug bans are reduced by substitution. If I would use marijuana instead of alcohol, but I use alcohol instead because marijuana is illegal, then the ban isn't helping me. It could be hurting me and those around me because alcohol is more dangerous than marijuana. Replacing an illegal drug with a legal one of equal or worse danger cancels out the health benefits of drug bans. 
Efforts to reduce the amount of drug use often create more harm than good. An example is the U.S. 2003 Rave Act. This act made rave venues more responsible for stopping illegal drug use. Such establishments stopped selling bottled water and offering chill-out rooms because this was seen as catering to people using ecstasy. However, these activities had helped reduce ecstasy-related deaths from dehydration. So, in exchange for possibly some less people using ecstasy, others died because venues were too afraid of legal action to take basic steps that make the chances of dying from ecstasy close to zero. We should be concerned about actual serious health outcomes, not the number of people that use a drug. In the late 1990s, the UN banned an MDMA precursor called Safrol because banning MDMA wasn't working. This reduced MDMA production a little until 2007, when a big sassafras oil seizure was made. This seriously hurt supply, so underground chemists switched to aniseed oil. Instead of MDMA, this made PMA or PMMA, which could be deceptively sold as MDMA. By the way, MDMA is ecstasy. However, these new drugs absorbed more slowly in the stomach, making their hit come in 60 rather than 20 minutes. People thought they got a weak tab, so took more. While MDMA and the new drugs both release serotonin, the new drugs also block the breakdown of serotonin, and when serotonin reaches toxic levels, this can cause serotonin syndrome with hypothermia, seizures, and death. Basically, the new drugs were considerably more dangerous than MDMA. There was a wave of deaths in the late 2000s blamed on ecstasy, but really it was PMA and PMMA. In the UK, annual deaths from these surpassed the number of annual deaths that MDMA had ever produced. So, we had a mostly safe drug called MDMA. Governments banned a key component to creating it, and then many celebrated a giant bust on that component, thinking they had made the world a better place. When in reality, the illegality of the component and the big drug bust led directly to the deaths of young partygoers who would have been just fine if the drug and its components were allowed to be produced and sold freely. Because marijuana is illegal and can be detected for weeks, people prefer to take drugs that are harder to test for. Synthetic cannabinoids didn't feel as good as natural marijuana, but were not detectable in urine tests. These were banned and a second generation of synthetics were born. These were even more unpleasant and were more harmful. They were also banned. A third set were created that often caused psychotic reactions, seizures, and heart attacks. However, they couldn't be detected. Thousands of synthetic variants were made, so it's hard for authorities to test for them all. This all led to deaths from synthetic cannabinoids. Deaths that would not have been caused by regular marijuana. And the only reason people were using these more deadly synthetics 
was because officials made real and safer marijuana illegal. Such synthetics also produced violence and other health issues. Some people knew they were taking the more dangerous drugs. Others just wanted a casual hit, but instead accidentally took much more dangerous synthetic marijuana. Sellers preferred synthetics because they were more powerful, making sellers need less of the substance, so it's easier to smuggle. And because marijuana is illegal, if someone accidentally or purposely sells you a more dangerous drug than you asked for, legal recourse is more difficult. Cocaine was banned and supply was successfully reduced. This greatly increased the price of cocaine, giving people the incentive to traffic the substance and find a form of cocaine easier to smuggle. Thus, producers invented crack, which first hit the United States in 1984. Because crack is smoked rather than snorted, it is more deadly and addictive. Thus, by greatly reducing supply, governments facilitated the creation and use of a more deadly and addictive substance. It looks like reducing the supply of cocaine in an effort to save lives actually got more people killed. This story happens again and again, and they are great tragedies. Well-meaning people try to help their fellow man, but end up doing more harm than good. At one point, cocaine was sold like a safe food additive. It was in Coca-Cola. That wasn't a good idea, and laws may have been needed to stop that. But completely banning it has caused more harm than good. In Scott County in southern Indiana, there was a problem with people crushing and snorting a painkiller called Opana. The manufacturer switched to a design that stopped people from crushing and snorting. However, users switched to injecting. In Scott County, it was illegal to own syringes unless intended for medical purposes. This made a shortage of syringes and led to sharing needles. Scott County then had an HIV epidemic. Additionally, by making pills hard to crush and snort, users turned to injection and black market drugs, including fentanyl-laced heroin. For at least four reasons, the banning of a substance makes attempts to use that substance more dangerous for those that still use it. These four reasons cause the drug to be more potent, or mixed with something else, or to be a different substance than the user was expecting. One reason is there is no civil recourse. It's not like you can sue your drug dealer. A second is the ineffectiveness of criminal recourse. The producers and sellers are already breaking the law, so they have less incentive to not deceive their customers or business partners on account of legal penalties. Three, there are no regulations of labeling. A consumer product is often required by law to list specifically what is in it and not deviate from what is told to the consumer. Four, there is the iron law of prohibition. When a substance is illegal, then transporting it is more expensive and riskier. One can't easily use normal logistic channels and has to smuggle the substance instead. This incentivizes smaller cargo and therefore more concentrated drugs, meaning more potent drugs. Not only are more potent drugs easier to smuggle, they are easier for the user to hide, transport, and use without being caught.
Drugs with higher potency are also more easily cut with other dangerous chemicals. With more powerful ingredients, sellers can make the product last longer by mixing this powerful stuff with something weaker. The increased potency of the drug and the mixing of drugs makes them far more dangerous, killing more people. With legalization, more people will likely use drugs, but the drugs people use will be safer. So, we could have less deaths, even with more use. During alcohol prohibition, many were poisoned by toxic additives, and liquor became more popular because it was more powerful per ounce compared to beer. Fentanyl's prevalence was helped by the same iron law. Being more potent, it's easier to smuggle than heroin. A fentanyl package that weighs less than an ounce is equivalent to a couple pounds of heroin. Fentanyl is often mixed with heroin, sold as heroin, or made into fake opioid pills. Producers do this to save money, and don't always tell the lower-level dealers that this was done. So, even if the immediate contact with the consumer is honest, he himself may be ignorant of the more dangerous drug he is selling. A problem is that fentanyl is mixed with other drugs and people aren't aware of it. Fentanyl itself isn't the evil, but ignorance. This problem doesn't end with other opioids. Fentanyl has increased deaths by being mixed with all sorts of drugs, including MDMA and cocaine. Not only would legalization make such deceptive and deadly mixtures less likely, it would make the availability of drug testing legal and more easily available. Furthermore, when something is illegal, selling and transporting the drug carries a risk of criminal penalties, raising the cost of doing business. This raises the cost of the drug, incentivizing users to get more bang for their buck. So, more dangerous substances and methods of use become more likely. Since about 2015, heroin surpassed prescription opioids in number of drug overdose deaths. Synthetic opioids like fentanyl exploded later. The majority of opioid overdoses involve a mix of drugs and not just one. So people ignorantly mixing drugs is what's causing an explosion of opioid-related deaths, not opioids alone. Fentanyl, being a far more deadly opioid, also greatly increases deaths. Once the fentanyl wave was in full swing, a majority of overdose deaths involved synthetic opioids. Thus, although the opioid epidemic started with prescription drugs, it is now caused directly by the ban on opioids. People are dying because banning opioids facilitated dangerous mixtures and more potent synthetics. When drugs are illegal, it's often more difficult to get clean, sterilized needles. This leads to sharing needles that spreads HIV. In New York City, more than 60% of injection drug users are HIV positive. This isn't just because the drug is illegal, but because drug paraphernalia like needles are illegal and therefore hard to get. In Liverpool, England, clean needles are easy to get and less than 1% of such users have HIV. Needles also transmit hepatitis C and other blood-borne diseases. As of 2010, 8% of new HIV cases in the U.S. were caused by injecting drugs. Crimes done to obtain funds in order to feed addiction are partially attributable to illegality because illegality increases the price of drugs. Illegality 
also often comes with less outreach to help those who may commit crimes for the sake of obtaining more drugs. However, if legalization results in more addicts, that would work towards increasing this type of crime. So, whether legalization reduces addiction-related crime depends. If drugs were legal, addicts would be more likely to get help, less likely to share needles, and more likely to be tested for HIV. When banned, users are less likely to tell medical professionals about their drug use. If informed, the doctor could give good advice and information, and this knowledge could affect how the doctor treats the patient. If heroin were legal, information about it and how to prevent heroin overdose deaths would flow more freely. Lives would be saved by ending how legal restrictions clog the flow of information about how to use heroin more safely and how to limit the chance of overdose. Some governments decide that because drugs are illegal, people shouldn't be provided access to clean needles, even though needle exchanges have been found to greatly reduce bloodborne viruses. When governments aren't generous toward giving treatment to drug users, these users are unlikely to get good treatment for their addiction and for other diseases, diseases that could infect additional people. Sometimes they can't get consistent medication, so they start and stop it, leading to multi-drug-resistant pathogens. If we treat drug injectors as patients in need of medical care, this can be avoided. The problem is, we all too often view drug users as people unworthy of help because of their immoral behavior. We often think they deserve punishment. Much shoplifting and burglary is by drug users trying to fund their addictions. Often users in need of money for their addiction become drug sellers and pushers, expanding the use of the drug. They wouldn't be pushed into doing this if they were treated as patients rather than criminals. If legal, services offering to test the quality of a drug and the substances in a drug could be widely available with the tester not having to worry about legal problems. Being able to test drugs would reduce deaths resulting from people not knowing what they're taking. One way that marijuana can act as a gateway drug is by putting people in contact with illegal dealers who are happy to sell more dangerous and more profitable drugs like crack and heroin. Another gateway mechanism, if one is put in jail for marijuana, he may start something like heroin in jail. Ironically, by more aggressively testing for marijuana, additional prisoners use heroin because it leaves the body faster. Furthermore, by forcing those who want to do drugs to do so illegally, they come into contact with rule breakers who may influence them to commit additional crimes. Much drug-related violence is not done by those under the influence of drugs, but by rival gangs vying for control over illegal drug markets. The same thing happened under alcohol prohibition, where rival bootleggers would kill each other. By allowing criminal organizations to control drug markets, we fund their wars with each other, their corruption of governments, their domineering of local peoples, their human trafficking, also known as modern slavery, their destabilizing of governments, their kidnapping, their extortion, their counterfeiting, their murders, and sometimes their terrorist activities. Opium and cannabis production funded Al-Qaeda. The profitability of illegal drugs destroys already disadvantaged communities. 
These young men feel they have less prospects, so are more likely to take the quick payment from selling or moving drugs. A quarter of all young black men are under criminal justice supervision. Most of that is for drug offenses. Battles between drug gangs turn poor communities into dangerous war zones. Once the drug trade in certain communities is common, it normalizes criminality. If there were fewer profitable black market substances, the incentives for young men to stay on the straight path would be higher as there'd be fewer illegal jobs and less illegal money. In a normal market, there are legal mechanisms for solving disputes. Also, to use violence would ruin the business's reputation as well as result in criminal and civil penalties. Black markets can't turn to legal dispute mechanisms, and everyone involved is already breaking the law, so it's easier to get away with murder. It's also easier to get away with bribery and corruption. When substances with high demand are made illegal, this creates a very profitable illegal activity, and these profits can be used to bribe or threaten police, lawyers, judges, and prison guards. In the UK, most recreational cannabis comes from farms run by gangs who use the money for other crime, like human trafficking. Recently, such farms have been run by Vietnamese gangs who use illegal Vietnamese immigrants to work like slaves. Some of these workers are children. Rather than small businesses or big corporations profiting off drugs, due to prohibition, criminal organizations get this money. The banning of drugs greatly increases the resources of some of the most violent and corrupt groups on the planet. These organizations and people are much more likely to cut substances with whatever makes them the most profit and lie about it. And what's the recourse if you're harmed? Not the courts when the transaction wasn't legal. Drug production, smuggling, and related crimes benefit from economies of scale, so crime groups often fight deadly wars to become dominant. They can dominate farmers and force them to sell their crop for low prices. The harm done by ceding this trade to criminals is humongous. There needs to be massive and clear benefits to justify this. If drugs are legal, those that choose to use must deal with the health consequences. Drugs may also facilitate them harming others. However, when drugs are illegal, users must also face arrest, fines, jail, professional damage, associations with the illegal underworld, and all the temptation that such associations create. People that would be law-abiding citizens are now criminals with a record. Although millions of drug offenders are in jail, most are for non-violent crimes. They are at the bottom end of the drug trade. These people are easily replaced, and therefore their imprisonment has weak effects. Police aren't perfect, and the war on drugs causes the police to harm many people. For example, no-knock warrants sometimes kill bystanders. Prison can be bad for mental health, facilitate harder drug use, end careers, spiral people into worse behaviors, and is expensive. The justice system forcing treatment has helped some drug abusers. However, a review of the scientific literature found nine studies that met their criteria looking at the effects of compulsory drug treatment on recidivism and future drug use. The studies were awash, meaning the scientific literature doesn't find support for compulsory treatment improving outcomes. 
Tobacco and alcohol are arguably more harmful to users and non-users than many illegal substances. Yet, by categorizing them as legal, and most other drugs as illegal, it gives the impression that these are somehow safer to use. We should consider all drugs dangerous and risky, and educate ourselves on the particular risks and benefits, rather than falsely setting up alcohol and tobacco as special legal drugs. In 2020, the U.S. taxpayers spent about $35 billion on the war on drugs. The U.K. spends nearly £500 million a year policing, prosecuting, and imprisoning cannabis users. An estimate for a net economic benefit to the U.K. if it legalized cannabis is £900 million a year. Illegality means we miss the taxes that would be collected on drugs. The more money spent on enforcing substance bans, the less spent on educating the populace about drugs, prevention programs, and treatment. The resources used to enforce drug bans could be used in a myriad of other, more productive ways. While the war on drugs has made drugs more expensive, drugs are still widely available for anyone who wants them. And as we have seen, the drug war incentivized more dangerous drugs. Worldwide drug consumption continues to grow despite government's best efforts. A study looking at Australian states found no relationship between the level of cannabis punishment and cannabis use. Big drug busts create violence as other market participants battle for market share. When that resolves, the drugs flow again. According to one survey of high school seniors, 55% said it would be easy to get cocaine. 85% said it would be easy to get marijuana. It's plausible that many of those who didn't say it would be easy haven't really tried and would find it easier than they imagined. After a hundred years of trying to eliminate drugs, anyone who wants an illegal drug can get it. As long as there is demand for the drugs, the supply will find a way, and has found a way. Trying to suppress supply just changes drug markets, prices, suppliers, and the specific substances as people adapt to the current suppression methods. The drug business is so profitable that even massive amounts of interdiction and drug busts don't raise prices enough to discourage many people from buying and using. Rather, suppliers adapt by selling more potent and dangerous products. So, we spend all this money on drug bans for marginal positive effects and many negative effects. In the United Kingdom, someone can find a magic mushroom in the wild and eat it without worry of penalty. But if you brought it home, the penalty could be seven years in prison. If you let a friend have it, you could get a life sentence. This is complete nonsense. And anyone that understands that may lower their respect for the law and their government. When legal drugs are just as dangerous as many illegal drugs, the government using violent force to stop you from doing those less dangerous drugs is clearly nonsense. The government acting in such a way can weaken people's respect for the law and our institutions. The knock-on effects could lead to more crime and even a weakening of democracy and societal unity. Americans make lots of money from growing tobacco. They could profit from currently illegal crops as well.
the U.S. is dependent on Turkey for medical opium. If we moved this production to the U.S., those profits would stay here and locals could be employed. Legalization would create jobs for farm workers, manufacturers, salesmen, marketers, etc. With drugs illegal, the world financial systems are more unstable and less accountable. There is less transparency from all the money flowing through the drug trade. Usually, research on illegal drugs is difficult, harder to get funding for, or banned. We lose the benefits of that research. Consumers need to be educated not only on the pharmacology of drugs, but also dosing and route of administration. How one takes in a drug can make a big difference for its effects and dangers. Additionally, individual characteristics and the use environment make a difference. This is sometimes called set and setting. Set includes a person's mindset, notions about the substance, expectations, mood, and physiology. Setting includes the social, cultural, and physical environment where one uses the drugs. If drugs were legal, people and government would be freer to educate the populace about how to best keep oneself safe if one is going to use drugs, and providing such education would come with less stigma. Despite marijuana being illegal in California, the marijuana black market thrives partially because penalties aren't harsh enough for illegal growers. When busted, growers may lose a crop, but if they don't get caught, the rewards are huge and the penalties amount to a slap on the wrist. Furthermore, the massive amount of tax, regular sales tax plus special marijuana tax, as well as meeting regulatory requirements, makes legal marijuana very expensive. Many customers stick with illegal marijuana because it's so much cheaper and they already have black market contacts. It's also hard and expensive to get a license in the first place. Many growers would go legal if the rules and taxes made that more feasible. Some feel that outsiders will come in and sell illegally. So I, a local, should do it too and not give all these profits to outsiders. Zoning restrictions on where one can sell makes operating more expensive and marijuana deserts where localities don't allow legal weed give black market sellers a larger market and more incentive to stay in business. Other places like Canada, Colorado, and Illinois are having similar issues for similar reasons. A United Kingdom 2007 tobacco smoking ban tried to limit the effects of secondhand smoke. Compliance was over 98%. A study on bar workers found that the amount of cotinine in their saliva had decreased by 76%. This shows that the external damages of drugs can sometimes be reduced without completely banning a substance. <laughs> In conclusion, the self-harm of drugs has been greatly exaggerated, and although I don't think anyone should do hard drugs, it's possible for a sane and rational person to estimate that they can gain pleasure from even heroin without the worst downsides. A free country should allow people to make this choice. The drugs with the greatest external harm are alcohol and smoking tobacco. So if we should ban any drugs because of the harm they do to non-users, we should ban smoking tobacco and alcohol. Ultimately, the costs of banning drugs are too high for too little benefit. The cost to the taxpayer is tremendous.
people's lives are ruined for nonviolent and victimless offenses. We allow evil and destructive criminal organizations to make tremendous profits. When drugs are legalized, these profits can be made by legitimate businesses and modestly taxed for the benefit of society. With drugs illegal, we get more dangerous mixtures, more potent substances, and less knowledge about what's in the drugs people take. This all results in more deaths. It is the harms of drugs that matter, not how many people use them. Banning and cracking down on drugs results in additional deaths. And we take all these costs simply to raise the price of drugs. Drugs are still widely available to anyone who wants them. Looking at drug bans and prohibitions throughout time and space, we see some modest benefits. Sometimes less people use and therefore less people suffer the negative health effects. But when legal, these people choose to take that risk. So criminalization takes that free choice away from them. The most important cost is the external harms of drugs. But banning drugs has external harms too. The negative consequences of drug bans overwhelms the benefits, and in the end, we should err on the side of freedom. Drugs should be legal, even hard drugs. Don't do them. You are a fool if you do. But it should be your choice to make. Now, as a practical implementation, Legislators and bureaucracies are going to need time to figure out how to regulate new drugs. And different rules will apply to different drugs. Legislation and funds should also support education in providing medical treatment to the addicted. Those that commit crimes as a result of their drug use should still be given the option of treatment over long jail sentences. Efforts must be made to stop children from obtaining drugs, and, like tobacco and alcohol, there must be rules on the nature and location of how these are sold. So, it's probably practical to start with softer drugs, spend a decade implementing their regulations, then move on to harder drugs. Regulations and taxes should be as light as possible. 1. Too much regulation and taxation is an attack on freedom. 2. If such burdens are too high, black markets will continue to thrive. Although drugs will provide money through a regular sales tax, governments shouldn't see drugs as a revenue boon. The point to drug legalization is freedom and minimizing harms, not government revenue. I only support a tax above normal sales tax to pay for regulatory costs. If this can be supported by the sales tax alone, then no additional tax is needed. We've got to end the horrible consequences of making substances illegal. Legalize drugs. I'm Lone Candle. Like me? Comment me. Love me. Love me. <laughs> <laughs>